You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today we're talking about fatal poisonings. Joining us is Dr. Christopher Gaw, a recent graduate of our CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship, now a PEM attending and assistant professor at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Dr. Gaw is joining us to talk about poisonings not only because of his clinical expertise, but as the lead author of a study called Characteristics of Fatal Poisonings Among Infants and Young Children in the United States, which was published in Pediatrics in March 2023. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gaw. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really enjoyed reading your paper, and I learned a lot from it, which is why I wanted to discuss it with you on the podcast. So I want to dig a little bit into the data, and then we can talk about how we apply this to our pediatric practices, you in the emergency department and me in primary care. So just to start, your study team looked at data on fatal poisonings among children under six years of age from 40 states in 2005 to 2018, which included 731 cases. Now, I'm curious, what were some of the demographic characteristics of those 731 cases? For example, things like which ages were most at risk and were there any other themes that you saw? Yeah, so in terms of age, we found that the youngest children were disproportionately represented among the cases. So for example, approximately two in five cases involved infants less than one year of age, and nearly two in three of those fatalities of in our data set involved children under the age of two. When we were looking at other demographic characteristics, such as location and supervision characteristics, we found that 65% of fatal poisonings occurred in a child's home, and about 14% occurred in a friend or relative's home. Most children were supervised at the time of the incident, often by a biological parent, grandparent, or other relative. We also noted that a subset of children in our study had demographic factors associated with social risk. For example, nearly one-third of fatalities had a history of child maltreatment documented. In one in five cases, there was a sibling placed outside of the home before the child's death. I think those are really helpful demographics to key into because it does help us a little bit in terms of some of the counseling that we might provide families as um, you're sort of alluding to. So we have kids who are younger, kids being at home, so the importance of childproofing our own homes and thinking about risk factors that might be present in some families where counseling about accidental poisonings might be even more important. Now, in your study, 47% of fatal poisonings involved opioids. And your study period has this advantage that it spans 2005 to 2018. And the opioid epidemic has changed a lot in that time period. So I'm wondering, has children's access to opioids changed over this time period? Yeah, this is a great point. And as you mentioned, the opioid epidemic is changing and has changed a lot over the past several decades. So going back a little bit in time and in history, in the 1990s throughout the 2000s, most of the opioid epidemic was attributable to prescription opioids. 
So those opioids that you receive from a doctor's office. However, throughout the 2010s, we have seen a shift in the epidemic towards non-prescription opioids. These include heroin and synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl. Young children are often exposed to what is in and around their environment. So it's likely that children today are being exposed not only to prescription opioids, which remain a problem, but also increasingly to non-prescription synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Now, our study didn't specifically break down the different type of opioids that were involved in these fatalities, but other studies have looked at this and using different data sources, and they've described this shift that we're talking about with regards to the epidemic. Right. And we know how dangerous some of those opioids can be. And I think that, again, just calls into why this is such an important topic for us to be talking about. Now, one of the aspects of poisoning fatality statistics that I think is important for us to tease apart is that not all overdoses are accidental. So can you tell us more about what you found in terms of accidental versus deliberate ingestions? Yeah. And so in our study, when we looked at the data that was available to us, 41% of poisonings were determined by child death review committees to be accidental overdoses. 18% were considered to be deliberate, and the remaining 41% were due to a host of other causes. Now, when we zoom into deliberate poisonings, that 18%, we saw that nearly two-thirds occurred in children less than two years of age. Hmm. Now, deliberate poisonings are really tragic and sad events, and they're hard to prevent. Like when we think about what I like to call conventional prevention efforts, which typically center around caregiver education and childproofing, those aren't as effective or perhaps are even ineffective for deliberate or malicious poisonings. And so thinking back to what I mentioned earlier, that a subset of children in our study had demographic factors associated with social risk. So improving our ability to identify and help these at-risk children and their families can potentially help prevent these deliberate poisonings from ever occurring. Yeah, so important. Such a great point for you to call out in this study, too. Now, the accidental ingestions that we can help prevent are something that we as primary care pediatricians often talk to parents about when we're talking about childproofing which is why I found it especially upsetting that 65% of fatal poisonings occurred in the child's home and most were with parents as supervisors. And while we know that it's important to educate all caregivers, I think this highlights that we still have room for improvement with parents and home childproofing as well. So what guidance do you offer families in terms of preventing accidental ingestions? Perhaps many parents already know this, but supervising a child is hard. (laughs) When we think about kids, they are constantly exploring and moving around. And so a child might find a dropped medication on the floor that a caregiver doesn't see. Or they may get into a bag or a purse when a caregiver is looking the other way. These poisonings can happen in a split second, and it's not reasonable for us to expect caregivers to be within arm's reach of a child 24-7 to keep them out of harm's way. Therefore, instead of supervision, I like to stress that families should focus on preparedness and prevention. And so families should focus on keeping potentially dangerous substances up, away, and out of sight, preferably in a locked cabinet or closet, Medications should be kept closed in their original containers when they're not in use. And unused or expired medications should be safely disposed of to reduce the exposure risk to children at home. 
Another thing I really like to highlight is that every family should also save the Poison Control Center's number in their phones, which is 1-800-222-1222. In the event of a possible poisoning, families can access this 24-7 hotline, which is staffed by trained medical professionals, and that allows them to receive timely medical advice. Those are great tips. Something else that I learned when we talked previously on this podcast to Jessica Leahy, who is the author of The Addiction Inoculation, is talking to school-age children about prescription medications. And once they can read, pointing to the labels, showing that your name is on a prescription and talking about how that prescription was given to you by a doctor specifically for your body or your brain, and that if a prescription was meant for them, it would have their name on it. And those are helpful tips just to talk to kids about how medications can't just be taken by anybody and how they're really individualized and need to be taken as prescribed. And that works for prescription medications, obviously not for some of the illicit ingestions that we were talking about earlier, but I think was a helpful tip too in just terms of talking about how medications are used and drugs are used in households. Now, we've been talking a lot about opioids, but we can't ignore that nearly 15% of the poisoning cases involved over-the-counter medications. So what are some of the common risks in this category? So over-the-counter medications are everywhere, and they're probably in every household. Right. Several that come to my mind include acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and antihistamines such as diphenhydramine. I think to better understand the risks of these medications, we need to recap a bit of history. So going back to 2008, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration had issued a public health advisory recommending that over-the-counter medications not be used in children less than two years old. And as part of that advisory, the FDA had also advocated for labeling changes to better highlight the risks these products pose to young children. Many manufacturers subsequently adopted these FDA recommendations. Now, after those recommendations were adopted, a research group led by Lori Holmlow and her colleagues looked at fatalities specifically from cough and cold medications. And this study was published in Pediatrics back in 2021. And the authors found that despite these regulatory changes, fatalities were still occurring. They typically involve children less than the age of two. They were due to non-therapeutic intent, and they frequently involved antihistamines, such as diphenhydramine, or more commonly known as Benadryl. Though our study used a different data source, we also described similar trends, and we saw that a lot of medication-related fatalities involving over-the-counter medications involve children less than two. In our data, we found that nearly three in four OTC-related deaths in our study involved that age group, and we did see Benadryl explicitly mentioned several times when we examined free text responses in our data. I think all of this highlights how important it is for clinicians to educate families about the risk of over-the-counter medications and how that risk is especially pronounced in young children, specifically related to antihistamines. Some key counseling points that come to mind include stressing proper weight-based dosing and avoiding off-label use, such as using antihistamines to sedate or put a child to sleep. That's really interesting. So these cases were people using diphenhydramine at young ages and maybe at a dose that was inappropriately high? Yeah, I think that's what is likely being seen in our data. And antihistamines can have 
quite a few toxic effects, especially at high doses, and especially for younger children. Right. Yeah, so important to think about the -the over-the-counter medications that you have in your house because, as you mentioned, they are ubiquitous. I know I have many in my house. And thinking about where you store those medications, and again, I think how you talk about medications with children and the safety around them, especially, again, once they're a little bit older in that school age range, you can talk about how you access the medications and that they shouldn't really be accessing those on their own, that only an adult can give them those doses. But as you're calling out, much of the risk is in the younger age group. And when you mentioned childproofing, I also tell parents really to get down on the ground, crawl around, look around for anything little that they could pop into their mouth. So, you know, how many times have you maybe opened your Tylenol container or something and one fell out, hit the floor, you don't know where it went, (laughs) rolled under something. So I tell them, you know, your little baby and toddler is going to be crawling around seeing things that you haven't seen in years. So when you're childproofing, I want you to kind of get down on the floor, look under the couch, look under the stove, pick up any of those little things, certainly medications, which we're talking about, but also things like batteries, coins, and all the other harmful things that you see kids ingest in the emergency department, I'm sure. So childproofing is is a big part of this. So thank you for calling attention to that. Yeah, of course. And I think piggybacking on that, one thing that I like to emphasize to families, because sometimes they'll point out or think about medications as being therapeutic for them. And so they'll point out, well, it's just one pill. And I like to highlight how one pill for an adult is very different than one pill for a toddler or an infant crawling around. That dose is just much higher for their small bodies and can hit them much harder and potentially be toxic. So I like to highlight that to families as well. Definitely, right? They're developing kidneys and liver and can't process things the way that we can. And their bodies are much smaller. So Your paper suggests that prevention of fatal pediatric poisonings requires a multifaceted approach involving not only caregiver education, but also community-level interventions. So can you give an example of a community-level intervention that might be successful in this area? This is a tough question, and I'll be honest, it's hard to name just one. (laughs) So the opioid epidemic is a big, complex problem that has kind of morphed over decades. So I think there's not one or one easy fix. We wish there was one. (laughs) Yeah, yes, for sure. Um, So I think it's going to be a bunch of baby steps and a bunch of different fixes working together that's really going to be able to make impactful change. And I can give a couple of examples. So in the past couple of decades, really, there's been a lot of work on what I call the front end, which is trying to prevent opioids from entering the community. And so there's been a lot of work with educating clinicians and the public to reduce unnecessary opioid prescribing and unnecessary opioid use. And this has really been important in addressing the epidemic, but it doesn't really address the opioids already in homes and throughout our communities. Thus, we are now seeing more efforts focusing further downstream in that opioid substances life cycle. And so, for example, there's been a big push in recent years related to naloxone. And as you may have seen in the news, naloxone was approved earlier this year by the FDA as an over-the-counter medication. Yes. And so it's exciting. And we as a community and a society can build on that momentum and public awareness by working to increase the availability of and familiarity with this life-saving antidote. 
And so we can educate people on how naloxone is safe and effective, not only for adults, but also the youngest of children, including infants. And we can work towards increasing its availability, not only in homes, but also in public places, such as libraries or public transportation centers. Mm -hmm. Other community-level efforts that come to mind include enhancing access to medication-assisted treatment and addressing long-standing social inequities. And recently, there's been a move or movement towards removing existing opioids out of circulation, and there's been a lot of interest in that. And to address this, the FDA has started to solicit comments from the public and from industry and from academics to determine if it would require drug manufacturers to make in-home drug disposal products, which are basically like a pouch or a bag or a container where you put a drug into it, shake it up, usually mix it with water Hmm. to inactivate drugs such as opioids. And so there's talk about making that mandatory and making it available to patients as part of receiving an opioid prescription. Interesting. Well, I love that you shouted out naloxone too. And we haven't talked much about mental health in this podcast, but in terms of either accidental or deliberate ingestions, I always think about our teenagers and the access that they have to um, medications and drugs in the household that could contribute to poisonings. And I think when I have patients who may be using substances and have a mental health concern in particular, I always counsel families about keeping naloxone in the house. And I think that's really important, as you mentioned, that pediatricians talk to families where there may be risk factors about how they can get naloxone and keep that at home. And I'm glad that you called that out as an example of a community-level intervention that I think pediatricians can easily get involved with. It feels like a good entry-level way to have some advocacy here. Yeah, and I think that when we think about naloxone or traditionally when we think about naloxone, we think about it in older individuals or for individuals who are struggling with substance use disorder. But when we think about it, I like to reframe that mental framework. We should be thinking about naloxone how we think about an AED in an airport or right. how we prescribe an EpiPen to someone with anaphylaxis. It's a preventative, it's a life-saving medication or tool, mm-hmm. and it really should be available and accepted throughout our society. And so I think emphasizing that conversation with our patients and families is super important. That's a great point. Now, congrats on this paper. It was obviously a big feat to accomplish this during your fellowship. I'm very impressed by you. But I'm wondering, how has this study changed how you counsel families in your emergency department? Yeah, so for me, it really hit home and it really highlighted how certain substance classes can be really toxic or dangerous to children, especially young children. And so I think we've hit on some of these things earlier in our conversation, but especially for over-the-counter products, which we prescribe quite frequently in the ED setting, I'm especially mindful, perhaps more mindful than before, of really counseling families about the appropriate use of the medication and really reviewing that weight-based dosing and stressing the importance of safe storage, even for common medications like Tylenol or Motrin. Now, we talked a lot about opioids in this podcast, and prescribing opioids is relatively uncommon in a pediatric ED. Right. But I really 
now focus on talking about naloxone and talking about the opioid prescription and safe storage kind of as a package. And I offer to prescribe naloxone if I'm prescribing an opioid to a family. And there's a term for this, it's called co-prescribing. And our adult medicine colleagues are a little bit more familiar with that concept. But for our listeners who may be a little bit less familiar, Co-prescribing is a recently recommended FDA practice to prescribe naloxone with opioid prescriptions. And there are certain populations where it's specifically recommended, and these include patients who are receiving opioids who are at increased risk of overdose or those who are receiving opioids who treat opioid use disorder. But the FDA also called out something specific to pediatrics. And they had recommended considering a naloxone prescription if an opioid is being prescribed to someone with children in the household. And so Mm. that can be interpreted quite broadly and then also involves opioid prescriptions to children. And so I think that's just, again, recognizing how children are at increased risks for accidental ingestions or overdoses from opioids. Yeah, that's great. I actually really like the broadness of that because I always remind families too that as much as you might childproof your own home, you travel and visit other family members. So when you head over to grandma's house and she had you know, a hip replacement and got some opioids to manage her pain, they might still be sitting around in the house. And grandmas aren't used to having toddlers running around. So they might have their prescriptions you know, on a lower coffee table where they're in reach. Or again, they might have dropped something on the floor that they couldn't find. And It's really important to remember that even though you might be excellent at childproofing your own home and keeping those medications locked up and out of reach, you may be visiting someone else who just doesn't know how to do that as well. And so, as you said, this co-prescribing is a really nice way to make sure that there's naloxone wherever there is an opioid, but also just for parents to be aware and think about that more broadly. If you have a family member who you're visiting and you know they might be taking one of these medications, to just think about whether or not you have naloxone with you uh, or whether or not that person has it in their house and talking to them about how they might be childproofing while you're staying with them. I completely agree. And I think what you highlighted there about how children don't live in a bubble. So it takes a village to raise a child. And so there are many different people involved in a child's care. And so again, that anticipatory guidance, whether it's naloxone, whether it's childproofing, really does extend to every member of the family and even friends or people who a child interacts with. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you hope primary care pediatricians will take away from the study? One thing I really want to highlight is there's so many toxic substances in our world that could harm children. So it's really striking how opioids, which is just one substance class, is frequently or so frequently implicated in child poisoning deaths. Mm. And so I hope that our study raises awareness among pediatricians of the potential dangers of these substances. And pediatricians are a trusted source for many caregivers and parents, and they're in a great position to advocate for the safety of their patients. And we've traditionally reinforced conventional poisoning prevention and child-proofing practices over the years. And though this continues to be important, I think we can feel empowered to do more, especially when it comes to opioid safety. And so we've highlighted some of the action items or advocacy items that pediatricians can be involved with, whether that's prescribing or educating families about naloxone or helping screen 
for opioid use disorder and connecting patients to resources or medication-assisted treatment. And I think there's still room for pediatricians to advocate for policies at both the local and national levels that continue to reduce harm from the opioid epidemic. Great. I love those points. And you shouted out the Poison Control Center previously. I'm going to add it again because they're also a great resource for pediatricians. So if you have a family call your office with a possible poisoning or asking you questions, you can also use them as a professional resource. But I always have families, as you mentioned, put this in their phone, hang it on your fridge as many places as you can. Keep that number handy. So 1-800-222-1222. And you can call them at any time to get help with any possible poisoning or ingestion. So thank you to our colleagues in the poison control centers nationally. And thank you so much to you and the rest of your co-authors for publishing this really important study, calling attention to an important topic and helping us reframe how we think about childproofing and ingestions in the setting of the opioid epidemic. So thank you again for sharing this with us today. Yeah, and thank you again for highlighting such an important topic. And thanks again for having me on this podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes, or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 